In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul faces a crisis as the Philistine army amasses to attack Israel. Samuel instructs Saul to wait for him to offer sacrifices to God before going into battle. But Saul grows impatient and offers the sacrifices himself. This angers God and Samuel rebukes Saul for his disobedience, foretelling that his kingdom will not last. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Monday, May 15th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. Thank you for starting your week with us. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Many thanks to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online at lhfmissions.org to learn more about their translating and publishing work. Well, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us explore 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's the Reverend Dam Grimmer, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mitchell, South Dakota. Pastor Grimmer, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's great to be back here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. Uh, you know, we're sort of in the same neck of the woods, you there in Mitchell, South Dakota. I'm right across the border here in Minnesota. Um, things are starting to warm up for us, so I'm certainly pleased yes. about that. Yeah, the long winter is almost over, thankfully. Oh, how's your Easter tide <laughs> been going? It's only been about a month since we've talked, but uh, hopefully things have been uh, good for you. Yeah, yeah, we had a great Easter. We uh, we just had our uh, confirmation last Sunday, and a smaller class for us this year, just five kids, but that was such a blessing, and uh, we've uh, we certainly enjoyed the, the celebration of Easter and. Looking forward to um, continuing to preach God's Word and and grow as a congregation. Yeah, that's awesome. That's wonderful. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to get into our text today. You know, Saul is finally king, and um, we're going to hear how that goes. It's uh, Spoiler alert, he's going to get his first rebuke as king. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll do that right after we pray. If you would lead us in that prayer, I'd be grateful. Absolutely. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity to read and study, uh, read, mark, and learn, and inwardly digest your word together today. We ask that you would continue to bless uh, the study of your word, that uh, you would give us faith and trust in you, and, and that through all of your words, you would point us to salvation that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, the true King who has done all things well, who has been obedient to your word, and who has saved us from our sins and from death, in whom we have our uh, victory, our life, and salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, in our previous chapter, you know, the people kind of come to the recognition that they've sinned against God by asking for a king. Uh, in verse 19, it says, The people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to Yahweh your God that we may not die, for we have added to our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And his response is, well, just serve and fear the Lord. Serve him faithfully with your whole heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. But he warns them that while the Lord will not forsake his people, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And that begins our, well, it begins our chapter today. And I'm only going to read the first verse, because I think we could talk a little bit about the first verse. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the very first verse for chapter 13 is, 
Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, and then it continues, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, etc. And we'll get into that in a minute. But there's some, um, there's some interesting things to talk about when it comes to just this first verse. Uh, the Hebrew text kind of says uh, he was one year old when he became king. Did you yes. look into some of these discrepancies? What, what can I, we make I of this? I did, yes. That, uh, that does stick out to you right away. Um, seems pretty implausible. Um, the, uh, the Hebrew phrase uh, literally means son of a year, and it, uh, you know, it usually does describe um, a person's age. So we, you know, we read, you know, son of one year, basically, for Saul, um, would be a Hebrew way of saying one-year-old. Um, now, I, you know, I suppose uh, <laughs> you, you could just take that and say, yep, I, I, by faith, I understand this must be true. Um, however, um, there, there does seem to be a discrepancy here, even with, as we compare other parts of Scripture, um, because then when we get to the second part of the verse where it talks about him reigning two years— um, that doesn't really accord, uh, mesh with uh, Acts, I think it's 13, verse 21, where we learn that uh, Saul, in fact, reigned 40 years. So um, this is actually probably uh, one, of the, one of the few instances, not, not too many, but one of the few instances in the Old Testament where our text is not exactly complete. Um, probably the number one for one year old or two, Saul reigning two years over Israel there probably was an additional number before that um, that somehow kind of got lost or dropped out by a scribe. Um, maybe even somebody, you know, some of the sources I read, intentionally doing that uh, to to kind of degrade Saul in a way. Um, you know, he if if you did indeed reign forty years, which is what Acts tells us, that's the same length of reign as King David. Um, of course, a long reign is associated with prosperity with God's blessing. And uh, Saul, of course, as we, as we know, and as we learn through the book of Samuel, becomes an increasingly wicked king. Um, so though he has a probably does indeed have a long reign, perhaps a later scribe wanted to kind of make a point by, uh, you know, kind of degrading the number there so that we don't think of him as, as a parallel to King David. Right. I mean, there's always this overarching, I don't know, just an ominous cloud over Saul's uh, kingship because, A, he's the king they're asking for in sin. We've already been told from God through Samuel that this king is bad news. Um, and here he is getting started. And Samuel's walking this fine line, it seems, between uh, saying you have to honor your king and your lord, even though you sinned in asking for him. And things are going to go poorly because of your sin. But if you're obedient, then things should go okay. But, of course, he knows they won't be obedient. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to detailing Saul's, I guess, length of kingship, it, it just seems like there nobody's really that concerned. I mean, we have, yeah. of course, the reality that the text is simply damaged. So we don't have the numbers. We don't know what it's really saying this damage probably happened before the Greek version was even produced, around mm -hmm. 300 B.C. So we just don't—so it's a corrupted uh, corruption of the material, so we don't know how it is. But I, you have to also admit—I I imagine like a little two-year-old king rounding up thousands <laughs> of people— and leading them into battle. That's a pretty cool image, but it, yeah, it it's is. very unlikely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, well, and it, and especially because we're also kind of um, even in this chapter, you know, Saul's son Jonathan is is also leading forces, um, and uh, you know, we're, we're we're kind of led to believe or told that uh, you know some of these sons of his are already born prior to his kingship. So even if it were possible, somehow a one-year-old you know little toddler or something was leading Israel. Um, you know, to have grown sons. And then, of course, we learned a few chapters ago that, that Saul was even physically imposing, you know, taller than all the other men of Israel. So not very likely unless he was, you know, just some kind of freak baby or something. Um, but yeah, most likely just a corruption. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, that the Christian church is very honest about these things where we we do look at the text and go, you know, this what we have here can't actually be um, original. There, there must have been something that dropped out here for whatever reason. We, we can pose different theories, but, you know, we're not trying to hide where there are some maybe mistakes in copying in the scriptures. We're, we're very honest about that. And, uh, you know, this is the word of God. Um, and so we don't, uh, we don't take it lightly when, and, and try to try to make up the difference ourselves. We just say, here's what we've been given and, uh, we receive it by faith and, um, and, and understand it through the through the power of the Holy Spirit, but uh, we're not we're not trying to fill in the gaps according to our own reason either. Right. And when we talk about the Bible being uh, infallible, I think it's important that people remember that we're speaking of it according to what we call the original autographs. That is, when men first put pen to paper, or in this case, vellum or whatever. Yes. Um, this the inspired text was indeed perfect. It's the transmission of it that, well, tends to introduce some uh, different variances, and, and we call those variants, and we, it introduces errors. But even amongst all the variants we have in the text, I just want to assure the readers, and I'm sure you do too, that none of them ever change any um, significant theological doctrine. Like, for instance, there aren't any uh, other variants out there that the church is suppressing that says something like, you know, well, Jesus wasn't God, or or Jesus was married, or something crazy like that. It's always like, oh, uh, in one verse, it's uh, sorry, in one manuscript it says Jesus, and the other manuscript it says Lord. Or in this case, right. some say he was one years old, others say he was forty years old to align it with Acts. So it's just important to remember. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to add the rest of the verses some context. We're going to get all the way to verse four this time, and we'll begin again at verse one. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Okay, so um, here we have, yet again, um, setting the stage for war. And we have Jonathan. Who's Jonathan? Remind us of Jonathan. And Jonathan is Saul's uh, son, and uh, I I believe this is the first time he's actually mentioned. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, we have you know most of the 
the narratives we're going to get with Jonathan are, are coming up, and especially his friendship with, with David before he became king. Um, but he is himself also a, a warrior as well. Um, and we see here that uh, Saul gives him command of uh, about a third of his army um, and a garrison of his own in a place called Gibeah. Um, so he's already um, earned the trust of his father, I guess, um, and earned some military prowess here in, in defeating um, a garrison of the Philistines at Geba. I think it's interesting, too, though, that it says in verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and then it was heard that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's—I don't think there's anything more significant to that than, you know, Saul's the king, so he yes, gets the credit. Yes, yeah. He gets credit. He's, he's the, he's the commander-in-chief, and so, uh, you know, the work of the subordinates is maybe praised, but ultimately the— the king gets the credit for the victory. Yeah, and Saul is a guy who likes the credit. We're gonna, we're not gonna mm-hmm. get there today, of course, but we do know of a biblical incidents where, uh, let's say, a young man named David gets a little more credit than he does. He doesn't like that. Yes, <laughs> that's gonna indeed. come up again. Right. Yeah. Well, let's add to the verses. Now it's five through seven, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Mishmash to the east of Beth Aven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So this is a, a for, well, the Philistines have, throughout Samuel, been a formidable enemy, and they continue to be with their uh, stronger numbers and advanced technology. But yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're frightened. Yeah, they're kind of, uh, you might even say they're kind of the chief um, enemy of Israel at this point, both really kind of from the, the end of the period of the Judges, um, and and then into yeah the early reign of Saul and David, um, these are kind of the guys that that they're fighting against all the time, right? Of course, there's the David's defeat of Goliath is maybe the most famous Israel Philistine battle, um, but there's quite a few of these, um, yeah. And they, um, yeah, they have uh, they have superior numbers, as you said, superior technology, which is going to come up again at the at the end of the chapter, um, but uh, you know. It's not quite clear, maybe in the first few verses we just read of, um, you know, Saul only musters about 3,000 men. Israel, of course, could could have quite a few more than that. So why why he started with such a small force? Maybe he wasn't initially looking to provoke a full-scale war, um, but nevertheless, Jonathan's defeat uh, creates that um, reality for them. The Philistines, as it said... Israel became a stench to the Philistines. You know, they were just disgusted that they had been defeated in this in this battle. And this is them, uh, you know, putting all their eggs into this basket. They're coming out full force. They're they're mustering all their troops. Um, even the language of sand on the seashore, you know, just evokes this uh, massive, um, you know, group of men that you you almost can't even count. Um, so this is this is them kind of. It's a full scale mobilization and invasion of Israel. And I don't want to get bogged down into these tiny little things, but I just want to note that this is actually another place where the texts are a little dubious on the numbers, too, which Mm -hmm. is why I think 
that the most accurate number in this particular verse is the so-called sand on the seashore in multitude. I think that's the image that we should take away because some manuscripts will say 3,000 chariots, some will say 30,000, some will say um, uh, 30. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah. Some actually, I mean, we look elsewhere and the most we've ever seen is 1,700. So, you know, it's like the numbers when we look at them here in the scriptures, very often, very often, they are rounded up, they are used in such a way to, um, you know, like, oh, I, I, I'm, I, I, I say a sorry a million times, you know, they're hyperbolic to just get the image of what they're facing. Now, they are oftentimes also symbolic, but not always. And, and in this case, I think we can rely most on that phrase, like the sand on the seashore, because the response of the people of Israel is, wow, this is the end, and they're hiding, hiding in, I mean, it, in yeah. caves, in holes, <laughs> yeah. in tombs. I, I mean, they're everywhere. Right. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're so overwhelmed. It's, it's almost like a Philistine blitzkrieg, I guess you can say, that, um, you know, they're, yeah, they think it's uh, it, it's time to <laughs> head for the hills, uh, quite literally, yeah, and and hide and and uh, I, I guess you know perhaps the Philistines were going to carry them off into slavery or um, maybe just even kill them, you know, plunder and loot and and destroy. Um, and uh, they're even crossing over the Jordan River, you know, looking for maybe safety further and further east away from the Philistines. Uh, maybe using the river for protection, but it's a, it's a full-scale retreat for them at this point. It absolutely is. And so it says they crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's like a literal, they're all standing behind him and he's up front. I mean, maybe, I don't know. But I think it's definitely the people are on board with their king, at least the ones there at Gilgal, mm-hmm. Yep. But they're not quite sure, right? Right. They're, they're afraid. It doesn't really give us any disposition of Saul, whether or not he was trembling, unless you read it that way. So it's a little dubious. Is it sure. they followed him in the trembling, or is it they just followed him trembling, whereas he was still sturdy and able to be followed? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's two different ways. How do you look at it? I, you know... I think Saul himself does have some fear. Um, I think that might explain what we're going to read in a moment with the with the unlawful sacrifice he oh, offers. Right. Um, you know, he's he. I think I think I mean I don't think he's a coward by any means, but I think he, um, you know, he's in a difficult position and he's he's nervous. I think about uh, his his men abandoning him and and having to face uh, the Philistines on his own, and so I. I think he probably himself is trembling a little bit. Perhaps the people are more fearful. Um, you know, Saul Saul has, maybe he's a little bit unproven at this point, but he has already won, uh, you know, a significant victory against, uh, uh, was it the Ammonites, I believe, in uh, one of the previous chapters here. Um, so he's uh, he's right. he's a little bit battle-hardened. You know, this isn't the first time he's faced faced a war or anything like that. But, uh, but this is, the, the, the odds are pretty overwhelming for him at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a scary situation, and, uh, well, you're right. We're going to see some of his behavior in, well, just right now, that leads us to believe that, at the very least, he's impatient. Let's read verses 8 through 12. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, 
Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to greet him and meet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of Yahweh. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. All right, we're going to stop right there. I mean, the, the obviously yeah. it keeps going. But um, Samuel does come in the days appointed, just not first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, yes. There's definitely an impatience here. Of course, yeah. Um, the seven days, if I might uh, just, just kind of make one little connection that a lot of commentators do, do make. Um, it is interesting, uh, if you back up to, to chapter 10, um, when Saul is first appointed king, there, there's a lot of parallel here with this, um, maybe the first part of the narrative even perhaps, of going to um, Gilgal. Um, we, we, we get, uh, let's see, it's chapter 10, verse 8, where um, Samuel actually gives Saul that instruction to go to Gilgal, to um, that he's going to come and offer the burnt offering in seven days, and, and he's to wait, and Samuel is going to give him instruction when he arrives. Um it, so you almost get the sense, and now, of course, a couple chapters have passed, but you almost get the sense that the first task appointed to Saul perhaps was to um, defeat the Philistines, and whether that's because of Saul's um, maybe indifference or just the the attack from the Ammonites, you know, kind of put an interruption to that. Um, we do see a parallel here that uh, it's the same thing, right? Uh, it, I guess it could perhaps even be two different instances, but in any case, he's told to go to Gilgal. Wait there for Samuel, um, seven days, and Samuel will arrive on the seventh day, offer the sacrifice, and of course, he's going to give him instruction. And Samuel is a prophet of the Lord. So uh, this is really the Lord's word of instruction and command to Saul. Um, Saul is indeed the king, the Lord's anointed, but this doesn't mean that he gets to act on his own authority or on his own uh, prerogative. He, He... fights the battles that the Lord has laid out for them and in the way that the Lord would have him fight. Um, that's what it means to be a righteous and, and good king. Right, and I think that's what's really missing from a lot of people's understanding is that you know the king, even in today's parlance, right, the, whether you have a king, we're getting ready to have the coronation of King Charles over in England, yep. whether you uh, are uh, an emperor like they have in Japan, whether you're a uh, whether you have a president and Congress or parliament, you know, these people serve for the Lord. Even if they don't believe in the Lord, they serve the Lord. Right. I mean, just because mm-hmm. they don't believe in him doesn't get them off the hook for having to lead and, and, and be leaders according to his will and ways. Yes. And, and that's what we see with Saul. And, and here he's, he's, he's told to wait. Why he's told to wait, I don't know, right? Samuel says wait. I almost wonder, unless it's it's, it's explicitly explained elsewhere, I, I suppose he's just having to wait because there's a little bit of testing and trusting going on that you know that needs to be established. And then when Samuel doesn't come exactly as he wants, he, and we, we've seen this before in 1 Samuel, he now has unauthorized worship. He worships in a way that God has not given him to worship. It's not, he's the king, but it's not his job to offer the peace offerings and the burnt offerings. 
And right. so there's this really a vocational theology going on here too. God is a God of order, and this is out of order. Mm-hmm. And God, uh, as you as you kind of you know said, you know God God works through every king and every earthly authority. Um, as Lutherans, we call that the kingdom of the left. You know, God is indeed protecting us, uh, providing for peace and security for for people all over the world through through earthly government. Um, but that's only one way that God chooses to act. He also um, acts through what we call the kingdom of the right, right? You know, the um, the church through through His Word and through the servants of His Word, um, which in this case, you know, is, is Samuel the prophet. Those are both God's order, but yeah, for different purposes and for different goals and different people uh, to serve in those different roles. So Saul's kind of trying to take both of those upon himself, um, and that's not right. Um, the, the only person who, who unites all of those um, offices together in himself is Christ Jesus, right? And, he, and the kingdom of the left, he uh, really ultimately is only going to exercise in a, in a visible, obvious way um, to us when, uh, when he returns and, and unites all of the kingdoms of the world into one. We talk about the separation of church and state in our modern thinking and you know parlance, but the reality is there there is a separation of vocations and duties, but they are intrinsically connected by He who is our supreme leader, King of Kings, and that is of course God Himself through Christ. So you know, even today we face these same challenges of where does the role that God has set apart for the king, quotes, um, uh, begin and end, and where does the role he set apart for, as you said, the right-hand realm, the right-hand kingdom, for the church, where does that begin and end? And so there is a separation in the sense that we have unique roles and unique ways by which we do God's will. Of course, there's crossover too, and that's the part that our modern yeah. culture wouldn't d- doesn't want to have anything to do with, but there there are plenty of places where those things um, are blended together, where we work cooperatively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and 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 I think the other thing too with this these couple verses that you did you did mention before is uh, you know in any case um, I think what what Samuel and really really what the Lord intends for this is that Saul would wait and be patient um, on God, right? That he he's to understand like the judges that went before him. Um, that he is not, uh, he doesn't win the battles by his own might or by his military prowess or anything like that. It's by the hand of the Lord. Um, and so God wants him to wait on Samuel and to be patient and to trust God rather than to take matters into his own hands. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of gives a, a semblance or a, a, a little bit of looking like he's going to do that by, you know, he does wait till the seventh day, but um, of course, it says right as he finishes, Samuel arrives. So it, you know, probably first thing in the morning. Okay, it's the seventh day. Let's let's right. just go ahead and do this. Um, you know, that wasn't really waiting on God. He's um, he's kind of ultimately he's he's jumping into action on his own initiative and and trusting in himself. I guess you might say. Well, you know, your thoughts also brought to my mind if we go back just a little bit, and it says, and all Israel heard that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And I mentioned how, you know, well, Jonathan kind of led that, but he's the king. It, it didn't occur to me until your comments. Well, elsewhere, we often, and rightly so, Yahweh. We hear Yahweh being the, the cause of their victories. He, it's a, the victories are attributed to him. 
And yes. so I don't want to make mm-hmm. too much of it, but we see here a little lack of what we've seen before. You know, now it's Saul, the king, who's the one that's defeating the enemies, where it used to be very clearly that credit was given to God. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think there is something in that. Um, yeah. Saul is, uh, you know, like you said, maybe we don't want to make too much of what's not there, but but it it is also interesting that Saul doesn't, uh, you know, direct their... Um, direct their thanksgiving to God. You know, he, he could say, well, you know, no, really, we, we ought to give thanks to God for this. Right. Um, he doesn't do that. And um, I think that is telling, you know, he, and, and as you mentioned before, a little bit later with when King David is one of his commanders um, and the people do kind of draw their, uh, direct their affection to King David and praise him for the victory, Saul gets very jealous and very upset <laughs> that he's not getting credit. So yeah, exactly. he's definitely looking for that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll cover this and more when we come back from break. But for now, we're going to take just a few moments to hear these messages. Folks, don't go anywhere. Like I said, when we come back, we'll continue with 1 Samuel chapter 13. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dan Grimmer, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mitchell, South Dakota. Thank you for joining us this morning. I pray that God blesses you through our study. If you know someone who might like the show, be sure to let them know that they can tune in over the air in St. Louis on AM 850, or listen live or on demand at kfuo.org, or they can hear the program as a podcast on KFUO's own mobile app or on their favorite podcasting platform. And here's a tip. Another great way to tune in is through a smart speaker. Just ask it to tune in to KFUO. As always, I'm available to answer any question you have or hear your feedback at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. Drop by and say hello. Thanks for being a loyal listener. Now, back to the Bible. All right, Pastor, before the break, we were just getting into Saul's unlawful sacrifice, as the ESV editors call it, and he is offering a sacrifice because of his impatience waiting for Samuel. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read just a couple more verses down to verse 15, and we'll hear what Samuel had to say next. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not committed... Pardon me. You have not kept the command of Yahweh your God with which he commanded you. For then Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army 
They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. All right, we're going to pause there again. So, you know, Samuel says something that is a little confusing to me, to be honest. He says, obviously you've done foolishly. You haven't done, you haven't worshipped in the way that God has established for you to worship. You haven't kept his command. And so now, Godway is going to take your kingdom away. But Mm -hmm. didn't we already know that? So how do we reconcile this? Yeah. Um, Well, it is interesting that... um, one thing I think you can say here too that we're not yet told that um, you know that Saul is is um, his his kingship's going to be cut short, and I think even reading these verses, I mean, we we know that that's going to happen, of course, as we've read the rest of the story, but but in these verses, we're not we're not directly told that we're just told that um, he it's not going to be a dynasty. His son is not going to inherit, right? Um, it's it's going to go to somebody else, to somebody who is willing to. Uh, to listen to the command of the Lord, um, the Lord God, and uh, and so there, there's kind of a there's kind of a progression, I guess you can say. Like yes, we we do know um, we do know that Saul is unfaithful, but his repeated unfaithfulness, um, God kind of intensifies the judgment against him. Sure. So here it's you know yeah your son's not going to inherit. Um, you know that's that's obviously not good. Most of these kings want to establish a dynasty in a household and and have their their children and grandchildren inherit their throne, but uh, it's going to intensify as, uh, yeah. Of course, Saul is his reign is is he himself is going to have it cut short by uh, by his death in battle ultimately, um, and that's a response I think God intensifying the judgment because of his repeated unfaithfulness and his repeated refusal to repent, um, and and obey the Lord. Right. Yeah, and I guess I was thinking a little bit along the lines also of how when the people wanted the king, um, you know, Samuel tells them on behalf of Yahweh that they're rejecting God by wanting a king, and he explains how when he reigns, he'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, right? So he's going to take all of your, your, your sons and make them part of his army. He's going to wage wars. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. This is in Samuel 8, by the way. And mm-hmm. he's going to take your fields and your vineyards. He's going to rule harshly over you. And so I guess I was projecting the idea that this evil king, or I shouldn't say necessarily evil, but this oppressive king um, isn't going to last forever because uh, you... um. <laughs> you uh that would be a benefit to him and you and you don't deserve that. Yeah. And so I guess we sort of have this indication that the king is not going to be holy. And when I think of the kingship lasting forever, I'm thinking not only of dynasties, but I'm thinking of course of Christ whose kingship lasts forever. Yeah. So I just was wanting to make it clear that was there a possibility had Saul been faithful that the Messiah would have come from his line or or is this God foretelling that this person would be unfaithful and therefore was able to uh, keep both prophecies true? That is, that he would be an oppressive ruler, but now his reign is not going to come to, or is going to come to an end. You see what I'm saying? I, that's yeah, what I'm yeah. Here. No, I think I think that's a, I think that's a great point actually. Um, and I think the answer, I, I think you said, I think it's that's exactly right. It, God is foretelling. This is what the king that you desire is going to be. And I think you even say, see, um, I read somebody, somebody had made this comment contrasting Saul and King David, 
Saul is the kind of king that the people are wanting. You know, they they specifically ask for a king like the other nations right. of uh, that are around them, and that's what Saul is, right? He's um, he's going to be a military commander. He's gonna he's going to be a, a mighty king in his own right, in, in some ways, but he's an oppressive king and a self serving king, the way so many of the kings of the world are. Uh, but King David, as really the man uh, through whom the, the the kingship is going to come upon Israel. He's a, he's a man after God's own heart, and he's a foreshadowing, and of course the um, ancestor, humanly speaking, of our Lord Jesus, who is really the ultimate king after God's own heart. So that's that's the kind of king that God ultimately wants to give them is is Jesus, and King David is a foreshadowing of that. But first, he he lets them have what they ask for, um, and I think uh, maybe to kind of show them. Uh, it really is a judgment against Israel. You know, this this is the kind of king you asked for, and you're getting exactly what you what you wanted, what you deserve. Yeah, it's it's a tough question for sure because we have all the way back in Genesis 49 that Judah is going to be the source of the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Right, it's going to be the source of the everlasting, uh, I guess, king kingship of Judah. It, it, we're talking about Christ, of course. But, you know, Samuel is suggesting that he, as a member of the tribe of Benjamin, might have this permanently established if he just hadn't been disobedient. And I think, yeah, what you've explained helps me understand it for sure. Uh, And some commentators actually also add, not only is Saul acting like the king they wanted, and, and David ends up being the king after God's own heart, but perhaps, and this is just speculating, but perhaps God... Of course, he's God, but he foresaw that Israel's going to have two kings, right? Mm-hmm. Judah and Israel, and so sure, yeah, it's, that's it's, that's definitely possible too. Yeah, yeah, I think I think all of that helps us make sense, and and it reminds me of one of the things that my professor said when I was in seminary, and it's like when you're when you're confronted with something in the scriptures that seems to be contradictory, then obviously we go to scripture for the answer. Scripture interprets scripture, but even if that perhaps fails. He said, you should try to reconcile it in any way you can. Now, however you end up reconciling it will probably be wrong, (laughs) but the fact that it can be reconciled is proof that it can be. And and then we just trust that God knows how it's truly reconciled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have here now um, basically Samuel chastising him. That's his job as a prophet, especially in this case, saying— you know, the people wanted you, you're turning out exactly as they deserve, but you are being obedient, you're not going to last forever. Now we're going to add a few verses up through verse 18. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Mishmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies, and one company turned toward uh, Ophrah to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. All right, so we'll stop there. So he only has about 600 guys left um, that haven't deserted him. Right. It's interesting that uh, the stated reason Saul gives for even offering that sacrifice is so that the army wouldn't desert him, right? That's that's why he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And nevertheless, that's exactly the result that occurs. Um, he has only 600 men um, against, you know, we're, we're, yeah, like we've said before, we're not quite sure the exact number of the Philistines, but probably a very, a force greatly exceeding that number. Um, and I think that is because uh, even despite Saul's unfaithfulness, um, God is um, God is going to give them a victory, as we're going to read really in the next chapter. This is kind of setting up that battle. Um, but it is it's going to be very clear that the victory is the Lord's. Um, like every other victory, you know, Israel really has had in battle up to this point. Um, it, it comes not by human might, comes not by the numbers of the Israelites or their, or the uh, military genius of the leader or anything like that. It comes from, from the power of the Lord who delivers them from the hand of their enemies. Precisely. And, and, not only do we see that turn, right, because, you know, we go from Saul looking for credit or at least receiving the credit to now God's going to it's going to be clear that he is the victor. But I think we could take this and apply it to our lives today, too. You know, when we try to shortcut God's processes, when we try to take matters into our own hands, as you so brilliantly pointed out, exactly what he was fearing would happen ended up happening anyway. I mean, you know, if we, out of fear for whatever we think might happen, try to push God's hand or, or uh, alter God's timing or even take things into our own hands, it's proof, this is evidence of it, that there's no guarantee that the thing just won't happen as we were afraid of anyway. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Um, and there's so many different applications, you know, you might think of to that, but yeah, we are tempted sometimes to maybe just commit a little small sin or do things just not exactly the way God has given to us because we're trying to preserve some great good or, or you know, we have good motives or something like that. Um, but ultimately, faithfulness and obedience to God's command uh, is what matters. And 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 many times the thing that we hope to prevent is what God brings about. One, one possible application I've kind of thought of is, you know, in, in regards to the church perhaps— you know, you hear sometimes people say things um, like, well, you know, we we don't want to preach against that particular sin because it might drive people away or they're not going to want to be here anymore. We don't we don't want that to happen. Much like, you know, Saul didn't want his army to desert. So he's going to do something just a little bit wrong um, to, to, to try to, you know, maybe from his perspective, preserve a greater good. Um, and yet, uh, often God does punish us for that, you know, seeking to keep people in the church by any means, uh, especially by being unfaithful to God's word, ultimately means, guess what? Those people don't stay anyway, and uh, and our church is weakened. God God punishes us for that. So faithfulness to his word is paramount, um, regardless of the costs. And and really, that is ultimately faith in, in God, is trusting in those promises um, and, and, and committing it really to his hand, not uh, not altering it or, or sacrificing anything God has said um, for for gain, even for maybe uh, good reasons in in our own from our own perspective. I think that's a, a absolutely perfect example because I can think of those churches that say, you know, we want to soften God's law, we want to water down even the gospel, right? Because the gospel isn't the gospel without the law, and mm -hmm. when we do so, we want to do it because we want our church to grow. And then right. even in those cases when it does grow, once you've removed law and gospel, you don't have a church anymore. You have a country club, you have a yep. concert night, or you, whatever you have. And so faithfulness is always measured by, you know, proper administration of the sacraments, but 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 more importantly even, 
a clinging to God's word, which of course leads to proper administration of the sacraments. But yes. the, yep. the point is, it's not just sort of a textbook definition out of our confessions on what the church is. It's about making sure that we're faithful to the way God wants to do things, even when we might think in our sin, we somehow know better or have a shortcut. Um, and so, yeah, we see that happening here. It happens in our lives today. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, and we're going to begin with verse 19 through 23. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan his son had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Mishmash. Okay, the, the, the account goes on, and it's a fascinating account, which we're going to cover tomorrow with Jonathan and the Philistines and his armor bearer. But just thus far, we get this picture where the Philistines have made it such that the, well, let's just phrase it this way. They have disarmed the Israelites, yes. and they have made it so that they cannot reasonably arm themselves. So the Israelites take it into their own hands. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it is very interesting. You know, I, I think again, this is all kind of setting up uh, what what we're going to read about tomorrow with uh, with chapter fourteen and, and the victory. But yeah, I mean, not only do they not have a, a large army at all, they don't even have weapons. You know, they they yeah. they simply have these um, farm implements that they have to even go to the Philistines to sharpen. Right. Um, only only Saul Saul and Jonathan are able to probably afford a sword. And uh, so, yeah, they're 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 severely outmatched in every possible way, humanly speaking. Um, they should not go to battle with the Philistines, um, and yet God is going to use that that's mismatch to point out uh, that this really is the victory that He's going to deliver to them by His power and His might. The notes that I have too, by the way, is that the charges for sharpening their farming implements are extraordinarily high. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what exactly the exchange rates are, but I'll I'll trust the commentator here that it's really high. Yeah, so it's kind of it's kind of an economic uh, warfare, you might say too, from the Philistines, right? Well, uh, not only do, are we not going to give them any weapons, but even to just to have the tools and need to farm to feed themselves, we're going to charge them uh, crazy rates so that uh, you know, yeah, they they can't even get ahead economically where they um, where they can compete in any sense with with the Philistines. So it's it's really almost kind of a maybe not slavery is too strong, but it's it's a it's a kind of like serfdom they have, yeah. you know, where they, they depend on the Philistines really for everything, and they they don't have the um, the means or the resources to to look after themselves anymore. Well, evidently, this level of control is extremely effective because we're told, of course, that you know Jonathan and his dad Saul are pretty much the only ones that have weapons, or at least metal weapons. And yeah. the generals, you know, the generals have, uh, or at least one general, I should say, has a, a metal weapon. Uh, you know, and again, I'm please forgive me pressing too hard. I don't want to make too much of it, but there's a little bit of modern warfare in this too because once you disarm the people. And once you make them dependent upon you for even sharpening their their um, their farming implements, 
we can see how effective this level of control is. And speaking only historically, you know, there are places in this world where the governments were very oppressive to their people. And, and we see that happening here because as the Philistines win, I think what we forget to <laughs> take into account is their winning means they're also kind of in charge of what goes on in the yeah, area. The, right. the battle has spoils, and the spoils is often control of area. And that's, of yep. course, why the Israelites are fighting the Philistines in the first place. It's not just that they kind of don't like each other. It's that the Israelites want to capture land that the Philistines have come in. They weren't the original inhabitants, but they've come in and occupied and so they're all fighting for that promise, that inheritance of God. And yeah, so we, we see here this this very uh, strict control is extremely effective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's um, it. Well, it's no it's no mistake not to <laughs> to dive too much into the into the political realm. But, uh, you know, I, I think our, our founding fathers were extremely wise with the Second Amendment and, you know, and the need for people to be able to defend themselves um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Cause this is, this is the kind of thing that you see over and over again in history, um, that, uh, people that don't have the means to defend themselves ultimately are at the mercy of those who, who have the weapons and have the means to, um, to take over. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, this is why we talk about even our rights in this country as God given rights, because, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, the founders recognized that, um, these things were God pleasing. So, uh, you know, we're getting close to the end of the episode, so I mean, just give us a big overview of what we've gone through and any other final thoughts you have about it, and maybe give us a little teaser into what's going to happen next. Sure, yeah. Well, I, uh, I think it's as a kind of a summary of this chapter. You know, this is the beginning of, of seeing Saul uh, really show his true color, so to speak. He is uh, a king who, who ultimately is going to place his trust in himself over against the Lord, and, uh, and he's going to be disobedient to God's commands when, he, when it is suitable to him and when he thinks it's uh, appropriate. Um, and that, of course, is, is not the kind of king that, that God wants to reign over his people. Um, he wants a, a king that is going to fulfill his, his word, his command, um, and not just the commands of his law, although that too— um, but ultimately, so that he can fulfill the commands of of the gospel, um, and as we said before, that the king uh, who is after God's own heart, that is going to replace Saul, of course, is King David. We all know that. Um, and what a contrast that is with King David! How he, uh, even knowing that he's the Lord's anointed, um, when Saul is trying to kill him, and uh, he has opportunity to strike back at Saul to take matters into his own hands, he does not. Uh, he trusts the Lord to arrange those things at the right time. And of course, all of this is, is, as all of Scripture, is leading into and pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the real king who is going to be faithful to God's word, um, fulfilling all of the law on our behalf, and of course, uh, bringing about God's word of promise to us by dying on the cross for our sins, by rising again, um, and by making us faithful. Um, if I may just read a very brief section from uh, John chapter Please. 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, he says, um, one moment here, uh, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and you have kept, and they have kept your word. Um, so 
through Christ Jesus, um, we also, by faith in him, have faithfulness to God's word and, and God's command um, because we have the forgiveness of our sins and his righteousness is counted for ours um, and he has fulfilled all of God's word perfectly as the per, pure and perfect king forever. So thanks be to God. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, Will, we are going to uh, find out what happens next, um, but for now, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dan Grimmer, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mitchell, South Dakota. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show again. I look forward to having you on in the future. Thanks so much. It's great to be here again. Tomorrow, we turn the page to chapter 14, just the first 23 verses. That's a long chapter. But in the part that we're going to cover, Jonathan and his armor bearer show great faith and courage by sneaking out of the Israelite camp and attacking the Philistine outpost. They trust God to help them, give them a sign to go up, and the Philistines panic and they start killing each other. Saul and his men join the battle and they see the Philistines fleeing in confusion. And all those Israelites who we talked about who were hiding and, and hiding in holes and in caves and in cisterns, well, they join the fight too and pursue the Philistines. And of course, as our guest said earlier, the Lord saves Israel that day, gives them a great victory. But that'll be tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong name.